Hey, what's up, everybody? Justin Ochoa back with episode 23 of the Gym Sessions podcast. And today we have on the speed guy, the original speed guy, one of the best in the game to ever coach speed and agility. We have on Lee Taft. Lee has been one of my mentors for a long time, pretty much influenced uh, every methodology that I use in terms of basketball, speed, agility, and multi-directional movement. So to have him on here, be able to interview him, pick his brain, get insight from him has been an amazing experience. I know you guys are going to truly enjoy this episode. I learned a lot. I know you guys are going to love this. So without further ado, make sure you listen to this full thing. Take notes. Hope you enjoy. Again, this is episode 23 with Lee Taft. Lee, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Justin. Great to be on. I appreciate you reaching out and inviting me to be on your show. It's going to be a great one. It's going to be great. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, we had some technical difficulties that we worked through, uh, but we're here now and we made it. So I'm glad that we can make it happen. Absolutely. Um, let's jump in and kind of get the background on, on who you are, what you do. I mean, if, if people are tuning in, they probably know who you are to some extent, but I kind of want to get some yeah. background on, on Lee Taft. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so my background, I started out as a phys ed teacher. So I'm, I'm the youngest of six that we, um, all of them, I'm, but the three boys are all phys ed teachers and my dad mm -hmm. um, was a phys ed teacher and we all coached. And so, you know, our, our dinner tables were interesting because we were, <laughs> we were talking about games and breaking down practices and, you know, that's the kind of stuff we talked about. And, uh, and then, you know, how to, how to teach a, a lesson in physical education. And then my sisters were te classroom teachers. So, so I pretty much grew up in education. And when I got my first job in 1989, I was uh, coaching three sports. I coached football, basketball, track. I was teaching phys ed. And after two years, um, and, and, when you're a teacher, you have five years to get your master's degree. So I was the type, I didn't want to do the evening thing, you know, where you go for so many years because mm -hmm. I was coaching a lot. I was so, I actually resigned from teaching and went full-time into my master's at the United States Sports Academy in Alabama. Well, what that did, Justin, is I, my my ultimate goal at, at that time was to be a college coach. I wanted to coach college basketball. So when I went to do my mentorship, um, I was trying to get into college coaching, but it was really difficult at that time because of NCAA rules. So I ended up going and doing a mentorship at Bulletary's Tennis Academy as a as a um, strength and conditioning coach, speed coach. And that's how I got into that area to that extent. And and then from there, it grew into, you know, running businesses and and doing clinics. And I went back into teaching for a while and was a head coach again of football. And I coached basketball and track. And I was a head strength coach at a high school. But the whole time since that, since the early, early 90s, I started running my business. And since then, I had owned five facilities. And uh, and then as time went on, I became more of a consultant. And mm -hmm. that's kind of where I'm at now. I still train uh, a little bit, but I and I'm a head coach right now. I coach basketball but I still do a decent amount of consulting. So it's uh, kind of come full circle back into the teaching realm. And that's really where I like it. That's awesome. And it kind of to add some notes there with the tennis Academy that you mentioned, I believe that then became IMG, correct? Yeah. And yeah. then I don't know if you saw today, but IMG actually is getting purchased by some investment group for $1.5 billion. Wow. I didn't see that. That's amazing. Well, Here's a funny story. So I was doing my mentorship and I was working there a lot. And I actually was getting paid a little bit every now and again for doing stuff because I did a lot. Because I had a, I had a phys ed background, they knew I could handle large groups. So when mm -hmm. like kids would come, like campers would come for two, three weeks from like South America or Europe and spend time there, they would put me in charge of all those kids because I could organize and I could. I could run large group camps and clinics without a problem. Well, they really liked what I was doing. I was, you know, whether I was working with the pros or the, the college age or the younger kids. Well, my mentorship was over. 
And I still remember this day. I, I finished. I said all my goodbyes to everybody. And I was literally walking out of the building, going to my car, getting ready to leave. And a guy saw me coming, walks up to me and said, hey, Liam, so-and-so. He was one of the heads of IMG for that IMG for that um, the athletic part of it because IMG isn't just sports. It's it's everything. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, uh, modeling and all this type of stuff. So it comes up to me because Lee, we really liked what you did. We'd like to offer you a job and we'd like to keep you here. And I, I said that's that's great. I said, you know, I said I've spent you know six, seven, eight months on a mentorship. Haven't really made a lot of money. I I now need to start earning some income. He goes great. He goes, we're going to pay you $13,000 a year to be a straight coach. And I said, hey, it's nice meeting you. Good luck with that. <laughs> and I'm like, $13,000. I'm like, my, you, you, I couldn't pay for my rent or my car or anything. I'm like, no, thanks. And, and I went out. But, and here's a company, IMG, that's worth billions of dollars. And they're going to pay me $13,000. So I'm like, no, no, thanks. I'll see you later. <laughs> hey, that sounds That sounds like... Strength conditioning. That sounds no, like yeah. times haven't changed much. <laughs> no, especially back then. Man, back then. my The guy who was my mentor, his name was Pat Etcherberry. Pat was the head strength coach at University of Kentucky for a long time. Won national championship in basketball. He was really, really good. And back then, he was in charge of all sports. He was the strength coach for football, basketball, gymnastics. Didn't matter. Everything. He did it all. He made $30,000 a year to do that. Well, what happened, he was working out with one of the tennis players. Her name was Susan Sloan. She was a top player in America way back then, young player. And, and one of the guys from IMG happened to see Pat working her out. He calls down to Nick Bulletary, the owner, and says, we got to get this guy. And because they wanted him to work with a young up-and-coming player named Andre Agassi, who who people in the tennis really know Andre. Mm-hmm. And so they hired Pat and they paid him $100,000 to work with Andre. So he went from training the entire University of Kentucky athletic program at 30000 goes and trains Andre Agassi for $100,000. And I'm like, what a <laughs> difference when you get into that type of industry. So yeah, it was much different. Dude, that's kind of funny. Kind of a little funny backstory. I'm I'm in the middle of a gym transition right now. We're going to build out a new space. Good. And um, the... The owner of the building um, had some basically just like some hand-me-down equipment, some machines. And he's like, hey, do you want these? And I looked at them and I'm like, man, how do, how do I know what this is? And it was actually the line of machines that Andre Agassi um, developed way back in the, I think it was like the late 90s or something. Yeah. I don't know if you remember those, but he had like yeah. a line of, of fitness equipment. So a couple of the machines we're going to scrap, but there's a couple of them that I actually like that we're going to keep. Yeah, so kind of full cool. story there. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, man. So I kind of, you know, I've listened to you on podcasts in the past and, and know a little bit about your coaching background, but I like to ask this question anyway, yeah. just to get people to dive in on the topic, but kind of what got you into coaching? I know you said you grew up yeah. in a, in a coaching physical education family, but what yep. clicked for you when it was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the greatest things that teaching does for us when we're in college is you have a student teaching semester, right? You have to go mm-hmm. and you get a student teach. It's like an apprenticeship. And I think every job should do that because it really lets you know. So when I went and did my student teaching, they asked me if I would help coach. So I started helping coach tennis and I would go in and actually help with basketball and I would help with other sports. And, and I really, really liked it. And before I was even uh, graduating college and when I was in college, I used to work a lot of summer camps and, uh, you know, basketball camps because that was the big camp back then. Mm-hmm. And I would do individual lessons with tennis and, you know, just any, and, and parents would ask me and actually pay me a little bit on the side to teach your athletes to be faster and run faster because I was always a good athlete. And I, I kind of knew how to teach it a little bit. I just being around my brothers and my dad. And so I got the bug for it. But when I did my student teaching, and I, I was actually coaching other athletes that I didn't know, um, it was exciting for me. And um, 
like I, I struggle in a lot of areas. We were joking about this, like technology and stuff. I just didn't, I never grasped it. You know what I mean? And I, I grew up at a time when we didn't have a lot of things. Like we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have computers. We didn't have all this stuff. Computers started to come out later, but you didn't really use them like we do now. And I just never grab, grabbed onto it. But what I had is, and I don't know if it's a genetic thing or just because I was around my dad and my brothers so much with coaching, is I could see things really well. Like I could see movement well. I could see an offense or a defense and how it should develop even before it does. That stuff came really easy to me. So it just attracted it to me. You know what I mean? I just, it, it, uh, it was something like, I know I can change this program around. I know what they need. Like I can evaluate a program, somebody's team or whatever, and pretty quickly say, these are things that would be on my, priority list to help this program develop and that's where the consulting comes in but uh, with my own program because last year I just took over a new uh, basketball program uh, boys high school and it needed a lot of work a lot of work and uh, it's funny because we started out the season last year 0-7 I had to get rid of several players really poor culture poor attitude but we just kept hammering away and then we end up winning 12 games won six out of our last seven got beat in the district championship or uh, semifinals by the number one seed that ended up going on and winning it. And so my, my strength in coaching is I can see where things need to go. I it just, it was something mm -hmm. I just listened to my dad so much and he used to tell me, it just kind of became a part of what I could see. And then from an athletic movement standpoint, I see movement really well. Technology throws me off. But just pure vision and seeing it and being able to recognize instantly, that's something I've always been able to do. So I write it. I write on that a lot. And I, I not that I don't think technology is important in, in advanced uh, methodologies of testing. I think it's critical. It just wasn't something that was comfortable for me and quick. So mm -hmm. I used my eyes and I kept developing that ability. I love that, man. So that kind of leads me to one of my first questions that I wanted to dive into and, you know, specifically in the world of basketball, I've heard you talk about a lot of different movements, um, a lot of different movement terminologies that I, that I think you've actually coined and, and named and identified from film. So I just want to ask, like, what are your foundational movements of the sport of basketball that all athletes need to master? Like we talk about in the weight room, it's, you know, push, pull, hinge, squat, all that. Is there a basketball version of that that you kind of live by? Yeah, yeah, and it and it goes it goes general to specific, just like we would if we're training a new team or a new athlete, right? Get them general development and then specific. So the seven patterns that we want all our athletes to be good at, and every day during our warm-ups or throughout the practices, we work on those seven patterns. So the first two are linear-based acceleration and then sprinting. And then the second two, so to make four, is the lateral. So you got lateral shuffle or defensive shuffle, and then you got the lateral run or what some people call a crossover. And then we've got two retreating to give us six. We have a backpedal and versions of that. And then we have a hip turn, which turns into something else. So I, I hip mm -hmm. turn to start retreating, and then I go into whatever we're going to do from that point. And then the seventh one is some kind of jump pattern. And there is a ton of those, right? I can jump, mm -hmm. I can leap, I can hop, I can do whatever. And so, Justin, those seven patterns are the foundation of our basketball movements, soccer, football, tennis, whatever. But for basketball, now what we can do is we can start to coin phrases that help a basketball understand what it is that they need to do specifically in different situations. So let's say you and I are playing basketball and my uh, you know, somebody's setting a screen on uh, like a side ball screen and I'm guarding that screener and I want to hedge a little bit. We teach our, our basketball players a, a term called the snap shuffle. A snap shuffle, when you hear snap, it's very quick. So a snap shuffle is very short, very quick. It's just enough to change the pathway of the ball handler. But let's say I'm guarding full court and I really got to work making this player turn, you know, turn every time they go a couple dribbles, I get in front of them. I would use what's called a power shuffle, power shuffle. So if I yell it out to my teammates, I'll snap, I'll go, hey, snap shuffle on this. Remember, here it comes, snap it. 
Or if we want power, we'll give them the power sign. You'll go, hey, mm -hmm. power shuffle on this. And so they kind of know. And it's we because we practice it, we don't have to talk about it that much anymore. But initially, when we're breaking it down, we talk about it. If we're using a type of coverage, maybe on a pick and roll, and I don't want to be up on my screen, on the screen, and I want to drop off, which we call drop coverage, we teach our players what we call a waddle shuffle. It's a little bit different. But it, it, it's better than a backpedal, which limits some of our movement when we're guarding somebody coming off the screen. So, Justin, immediately, I can say that to my players and they know exactly what they're supposed to do. Just like on the offensive end, if I said, hey, I want you to do an inside out on this to bring the defender inside the screen and then, then bring it back out. Everybody knows what an inside out is. Everybody knows what a crossover or between the legs. Defensively, we used to just say, hey, go harder. Or sit down. Yeah. You know? yeah. So what I tried to do was give words that an athlete says, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do now. No question about it. So that's kind of that's kind of the movement patterns that we can become really specific for the sport of basketball. I love that. I love that. I'm I'm big on having like organization and, and systems and I like names for everything. And yes. I think terminology is huge, um, especially when it comes to, you know, coaching because you're not always going to be able to fully explain something to your athlete. You need it to be, you know, a snap or a power sign or, you know, whatever your signs are for that. I think that immediately gives them the feedback that they need to be able to then put that action into the court. Um, and something you said about the defense that, that made me laugh because you're right. You know, it's like in basketball, there's all these variations of every move and everything and on defense, all you hear is just like, you know, sit down lower, get lower, work harder, work harder. <laughs> like you gotta want it. Like defense is effort, and and all that is true. Like yeah, it is a it's a mindset a little bit, but there are uh, skills that you can develop. Um, one of the ones that you mentioned is is probably one of my favorites, and that's the hip turn, which yeah. is you know I kind of consider that like a like a link, you know, to, to that next movement, you know, you're, you're here, you're square, you can hip turn, reposition the foot and then get to whatever you need to, to move next. Um, how, to my knowledge, and I've stolen that from you. Um, are you the, I guess the inventor of that, of that term, like where did that theory or method come from and how did you kind of um, make that what it is today? Yeah, you know, it's so funny you say that because it goes back to the original story of Bulletary's. So when I was at Bulletary's, I had um, um, a lot of opportunities to work on things because that was all I was doing. I was mm -hmm. there, I, you know, work all day, go home, sleep, come back there the next day. I mean, we worked every, we worked on Christmas Day. I mean, you're just constantly doing it. So I started to develop, um, just like you had mentioned, What's really important to me is can I make the things that I want my athletes to do very simple with one or two words or a really small phrase. So that's when the hip turn came. Uh, the plyo step, which is another, which is a version of the hip turn, but going forward, that kind of came in the 80s when I was a college basketball player. And, and the hip turn kind of did too, but it made more sense to me when I was teaching tennis, uh, movement for tennis. But what I what I did is I just look at it and I said, okay, the hips are turning, the feet are turning, so I call it a hip turn. And like the plyo step, everybody was calling it a false step because you know I played football and I coached it, and everybody said you know that's a false step. And I kept saying, well, it's it's kind of plyometric though. It's like the athletes are doing it for a reason, so I I coined it a plyo step. That's how it came about. And then like the lateral gait cycle, all these words came out because as I would study them, I'm thinking. Okay, I got to call it something that makes sense to me. And then it made it really easy for me to tell another coach, say, hey, think about the hip turn. I said, the drop step only matters or a pivot only matters when the ball's in our hand or if it's going to be a violation otherwise. But I said, the quickest movement and what athletes want to do is they want to reposition their feet so they can punch the ground away and that moves their body away. So that's how the hip turn and all these different phrases came. It just, I needed to say something to my athletes that was really quick. And that's how like snap shuffle and all these things came about. I like that. Um, so question about the false step. I think, I think 
you may have read the article that I wrote uh, for Simply Faster and, and yes. kind of gave you a little shout out there. And I love the fall step. And I think it, you know, it's a natural movement that yeah. that happens and we can enhance it through training. But, you know, trying to take it away is, is probably not the best idea. Um, right. I think maybe one of the reasons why the fall step got such a bad rap originally might be because like that's the I guess the mechanism for an Achilles rupture. Right. Like that's kind of how an Achilles will go. But the amount of false steps that happen with positive outcomes are probably, you know, a million to one for yeah. for the amount of false steps with an Achilles tear. Um, I guess my question is, like, is there is there a risk in a false step because we know the Achilles is at risk in that position? Or is that more of like a a load capacity thing. And, and that's kind of going to happen regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is how all of this started is all of the, my multi-directional speed methodology started because when I was in college and I was starting to study film a little bit on, on game film. And I noticed how I moved and how other athletes moved. I noticed how everybody repositioned mm -hmm. hip turn laterally, plyo step or that full step action and none of them did it with a thought process of i am going to move my foot here you just did it right you're going to beat me i got to do something quick and my foot naturally repositioned so what i started to do justin is i went back in time i started to study film that i could find way back in the 50s um i would watch um even before that i'd watch fighters boxers i'd watch um, uh, old football players, Gale Sayers, some of the greatest running backs, you know, Jim Brown, all these people. And I'd watch what they did. Then I started to watch guys like Barry Sanders and Michael Jordan and kind of, you know, around my age uh, type athletes. And then I started to, because I was a phys ed teacher too, I started to look at, geez, these third graders are doing it too. Everybody was doing it. So then that made me say, okay, central nervous system. And then I started to look at the sympathetic nervous system and fight or flight and then i said well the reason it happens and and this happens with football coaches is they scream don't fall step don't move your feet and then the next play the athlete does it again because right. the fact of not making a play is a higher risk than getting yelled at by the coach because you moved your foot the wrong way so the, the instinct and the innate uh, ability of an athlete to move is driven by the central nervous system that's been developed, you know, over, you know, centuries to protect ourselves. And so for us to think we can stop that is really naive because it's going to happen anyway. Now, having said that, that would be like the, the Achilles rupture is probably the result of some kind of low functioning or dysfunctional um, tissue that has not been properly treated, or or it could be just a genetic thing that, that could have happened, because you'll see of some athletes that they tear one, and then, you know, another year later, they tear the other, just like mm -hmm. ACL athletes. I have never ruptured in, uh, an Achilles. I've never torn an ACL, uh, but I've had some crazy accidents, like with playing sports and getting hit and stuff. Genetically, I'm probably just very lucky, as where... Robbie Hummel, who was a guy from Purdue, mm -hmm. basketball player, had three of them. Got, poor guy would come back, play him, he'd do it again. He probably was genetically just predisposed, maybe due to the notch where it attaches or whatever, just couldn't stay healthy from those things. But it had nothing to do with his movement style. It just had to do his body wasn't going to give it up. So long story. So we don't have, we don't really have the right to tell our central nervous system that's primed to protect us, to escape or attack, that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So the fact that an Achilles would happen, it's probably more the results. Maybe we didn't train correctly and we didn't build up some tensile strength in the tendon and, and, and encourage those quick responses and impulses from a plyo step that actually over time and with some isometric work and different things like that, builds a thicker, more resilient tissue, you know? So that's that's kind of my take on it. And what I found over the years, because I've 
I've never had an athlete of mine tear anything, and it's probably just luck more than anything. It's just been lucky. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I was joking. Like, I'm, I think I'm good at my job, but I don't think I'm smarter than the human brain at all. <laughs> like, exactly. I'm, I'm not even going to pretend like I'm that smart. Um, nope. you, you mentioned a couple, a couple of the other um, terminology that you use, like the waddle shuffle and yep. uh, those types of things. I want to kind of go into some of the differences between some of these movements that might be similar or look the same to the untrained eye. You kind of went over one with the snap versus the power shuffle. Um, I want to go into, I guess the first one would be like on a back pedal, um, different variations of re-accelerating from that. You've got like a cycle or like a T-step. And then any other beyond that, that you um, like to throw in there, you know, I, I just want to know kind of what your thoughts are on, is there a, a preference that we should try to train our athletes to use, or do we see what they do and enhance what that, what that strategy is? Great. That's an awesome question because this falls right in line with what we just talked about. So if uh, just a really quick story to, to kind of tie it together before we even talk about it is I was watching the NFL combine uh, a couple of years ago and Deion Sanders was was kind of the color commentator with the main commentator. And they just happened to be going through all the defensive backs. There were 37 or 39 defensive backs, because I remember kind of the numbers that they had. And they were doing a, like a kind of like a V drill or a W drill where they had to mm-hmm. backpedal, break, backpedal, break, right? And I think it was every single one. So it would have been 36 of the 37 or 38 of the 39. Every one of them did a T-step a version of the T-step and broke. One of them stayed vertical, what I call a vertical heel or a cycle action like you were talking about. And the whole time, Dion was saying, ah, see, he's wrong. He, you know, he's doing it wrong, doing it wrong, doing it wrong, doing it wrong. And then one guy does it right. And he goes, there it is. Finally got somebody doing it right. So I'm like, I'm sitting there <laughs> thinking, okay. So the best athletes in the world at that position who are getting ready to go into NFL football all did it wrong instinctively, but yet they're they're at the combine for a reason. That's why they're there. And then I go and I break down Dion's film and he had more T-steps than anybody <laughs> on a break, breaking up. So the point being is vertical heels, not wrong. A T-step's not wrong. We have to start using the word why. Why does an athlete choose to do a T-step in that moment? So if I were guarding you and Justin, you drove me off with one hard step and then maybe did a hitch, like you were just going to, you were just going to try to drive me off and then turn quick, quick, quick hitch pass. And then you're going to try to beat me one-on-one. Well, I could probably vertically have a vertical heel plant real quick. Cause I didn't have any momentum. I just took one quick step vertical. I could probably do it really well, but I also might do the T step if my hips opened up a little bit, because that's more cohesive from the kinetic chain from my pelvis rotating to the right, which brings my knee that way, which brings my foot that way. So I would naturally T-step. Okay. So, and here's the difference. This is why athletes would even use a T-step. When the foot touches the ground in a vertical heel position, however wide that foot is, let's say three and a half inches, four inches, whatever, how big the person's foot is. Well, that's the ground surface contact they're able to use. When they turn the foot slightly sideways, maybe 45 degrees, some 90, some in between that, Now they have, if like I have a size 10 foot, well, if I have a size 10 foot and I'm wearing cleats or turf shoe or whatever, I've got great friction, really good Mm -hmm. friction into the ground. Plus when I turn that way, I turn the hip on more because of that external rotation and the core of how we spiral gets turned on as well. So I really have a tremendous amount of stability to break out of that position. And that's what's critical. Can I get out of it? So when you see athletes do it naturally, it's an innate thing that helps them escape that new, escape that old space and attack new space really, really well. T-step, vertical heel, neither one is wrong. We just don't want to take away either one from the athlete because our coaches 50 years ago said, no, 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 you don't. You chop, 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 and then go. Well, while you chop, 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 and the guy's already caught the ball and scored, right? You haven't moved right. Yeah. But what happens typically is if I'm guarding you, we're even playing tag. I'm just planting my foot, not even thinking, 
and I'm trying to accelerate. The key that you and I have to coach is shoulder position. That's going to help us determine what type of footwork we have a lot. Because if my shoulder starts to get upwards vertically over my hips, I'm probably going to T-step naturally just because I need more contact. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to take me longer. But if I keep my shoulders in front of me, if I T-step or vertical heel, I'm going to be able to have a strong impulse and I'm going to have a great angle of force application to re-accelerate again. So that's really what we should be looking at and let the foot do what it does because the athletes are going to react naturally based on that particular moment. Yeah, it's funny you tell the story about Dion because I have a similar story. I, I made it a, a post a um, couple months back. It's an old DVD of Michael Jordan teaching yeah. defense. And yeah. he's like, you know, if a guy drives right, you want to uh, open up and pivot and slide to the And he's doing the, the old classic. That's what he was taught. Yeah, and you do the yeah. old classic pivot, you know, where it's like square feet. There's no yeah. uh, external rotation on that lead foot. He does the pivot where that front foot is stuck there. And then I, I cut up some game film of him literally never doing that, always doing <laughs> hip turns, always pile steps, always reposition. <laughs> so I guess that's a good question to lead us into yep. the difference between um, a hip turn into a shuffle or a hip turn into a lateral run versus yep. that that pivot where that front foot kind of stays stuck in the mud. Exactly. So, so let's learn from the T-step and the vertical here from going backwards to forward, the reason we like to have that T-step at times or the, uh, the body likes it is because it creates friction, which gives them more time to push up. But yet when we're opening up playing defense and we have to retreat and we use a full foot contact and we pivot, that's not good friction because mm -hmm. it slows us down because we're trying to go. If you're exploding by me, I don't want to take a long time to get around and the pivot does. And the problem with the pivot in order for me to pivot, let's say, let's say I'm going to pivot on my left leg, which means I'm opening my right side, the left shin and knee usually have to get a little bit more vertical over the ball of the foot. So I can pivot on it. Otherwise I, I can't even pivot that well. So that's a negative, but if I hip turn, so let's say my feet were on the foul line and I do a real explosive hip turn to, mass, to match your speed of going by me, you're going to see my, my foot that's going to be doing the push-off is going to move in front of that line. It's mm -hmm. going to create the angle of the direction I need to travel. And much like we talk about if we were punching something or someone, we wouldn't put our hand on them and then push really hard we would contact it. We would come from a distance. So the foot in the hip turn, which the first phase we call a pop-up. That's how we teach it. Pop out of that area, pop up. So what we do is we hip turn. And as that foot releases, Justin, it now relocates, kicks into the ground, stiffens, creates a massive elastic response. And then we move really quick in the direction we want to go. As where the pivot doesn't allow me to do any of those. The pivot actually needs more power. Power is better than strength, but it's not as good as elastic energy. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure we have more elastic energy. A longer lever or a longer leg is quicker to move. That's why sprinters don't squat when they run. They stay tall because they can get off, get it on and off the ground quicker. Same things apply with these multi-directional movement patterns, such as the hip turn. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. And the follow-up question to that is, is I still see clips of, you know, kind of the, like I said, the squared feet. And I know that you're really big on opening up that, that lead foot. So when you, it's yeah. like the, the pop motion that you teach, like push open or was yep. it push open, push, push open, push, would push be open, the push. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Push open pull would be the lateral shuffle. Yep. And so yep. you need some of that external rotation with the foot because the, the toes are going to point out in the direction and the, the shin angle is going to be there. What, like, is that just an old school myth of, you know, staying square and all that? Like I still see that and I'm not understanding why it's being taught. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we go back and ask ourselves, why does the athlete do that naturally? Cause everything that I teach, was based off 
you know, 30, 40 years of just studying and watching. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't question it. I just studied, well, okay, these athletes. And so thousands of times of repetition, seeing it, I, I saw these patterns. And then I would say, okay, well, why is that happening? And that's when it drove me to the nervous system. And, and then the kinematics of movement and kinetics of, of forces, right? So if we look at the shuffle and an athlete's moving really quick to their right, why would a coach say you want to keep that front foot square and straight? Because they're worried about the change of direction. Mm. And they think, well, if the foot's turned out, I can't change direction. The thing they don't understand is the body is the greatest at self-preservation and at uh, recovery methods. So when the foot turns out and I have to quickly change direction, that internal rotation is like milliseconds. And go, boom, it turns right back and then we start to change direction. That's why athletes do it all the time. I always encourage people right now while we're doing this, there's the NBA uh, playoffs going on. Just study, just watch any defender and you'll see their feet open up. I was watching it last night and Jimmy Butler and all these guys watching mm -hmm. defend and you can see them that just naturally opens. So here's the other thing to consider. If my left leg, I'm moving to my right, I'm in a defensive shuffle to my right. And my left leg is my pushing leg. It's what moves my center of mass. Now we got to understand the gait cycle. We all kind of know the running gait cycle, mm -hmm. but we don't understand the lateral gait cycle as well because we just haven't studied it as well. Well, when my left leg pushes off, there's a force created. But what do we know about physics? There's always an equal and opposite force to, to allow another force to occur. So when my left leg pushes, my right leg separates. That oppositional force actually helps my left leg push harder because mm -hmm. I've, it's creating a source of stability through my pelvis, which drives down through my leg and into my foot. So that separation of that front leg helps me. It'd be like throwing a ball. If I kept my right my left shoulder forward while I threw and I threw across my body, I don't have any force. But if I clear the front side oppositionally, reciprocally, I create more force. Same thing on the shuffle. So I push as that front leg uh, AB ducts opens and externally rotates, it creates more of that escaping uh, principle of protecting ourselves. So if I'm trying to get away from a wild animal, I'm not going to keep my feet squared. I'm going to turn and I'm going to run, right? <laughs> yeah. So the shuffle is a pattern we've developed, right? Because that's not a protective measure, really. It's it's how I how I play sports. But what happens is when the front foot opens, it now allows me to use my heel or my calcaneus. The calcaneus or the heel is highly proprioceptive. So it gives a lot of feedback to my system. And when that heel digs into the ground because it's so stable, I can pull while my momentum is moving that way already. And it allows me to maintain that momentum as where if I keep my foot squared and I abduct, I do not externally rotate and I pull with the ball of the foot and my foot's 10 feet, uh, excuse me, 10 inches long. Well, what's going to happen is because my heel's slightly off the ground, there's gonna be some rotation that I'm fighting. Cause I'm mm. almost like I'm pivoting. Every time I pull, my heel wants to come in. Well, not only is that uh, potentially an injury, like a groin type injury, it's just not very stable. Like my, my big toe, the ball of that big toe is not nearly as powerful as a tool as the heel. And now once I'm turned out, what does when I pull with my heel, you could do it right there while you're sitting. If you pull with your heel, you're going to feel your hamstrings turn on, mm -hmm. potentially the glutes, depending on how much your hips involved. And the, the gas rock is going to be very stable because you're in a dorsiflex position because the gas rock connects up into the upper leg, uh, you know, how it connects on the outside of those trochanters of the femur. And that's really, really important for the shuffle. So when people question me, I'm always saying, well, break it down for me. Do you want, they're like, well, you can't change direction. I say, okay, let's forget that. Well, tell me biomechanically what's going on. Well, you know, it's just faster. That's the way we should do it. I'm like, you got to understand it. If you're going to, if you're going to teach it or you're going to tell your athletes to change, but yet they naturally want to turn their foot out, you got to have a reason. And science 
and human movement tells us the reason if we actually look for it. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. And you mentioned dorsiflexion, something that I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, I think maybe a couple of years ago, I saw an article from you about that being like one of the most important um, capabilities for athletes to achieve and just making sure that your ankles are able to be, um, you know, flexible, but also stiff and have yeah. the, the access to uh, that dorsiflexion. Can you kind of just speak to some of the importance of how important dorsiflexion is for athletes? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is when it gets fun for us, guys like us, when we look at it, because if you take, and I've worked with several NBA programs, college programs, like higher level athletes. And the reason I'm mentioning that is those guys have put a lot of miles on their body and their mm-hmm. ankles start to like, my ankles aren't nearly as flexible as they used to be just because I've had, you know, you know, 50 plus years of total, you know, toll on them. And so I just, it's hard for me to get the same range. Well, what happens if I can't dorsiflex, so I can't bend my ankles forward. What happens is I start to to be able to maintain the same defensive position. Now I start to hinge more at the waist. So I bend over more and that's not wrong. That's actually a good quality. But because I lack this dorsiflexion, I don't use my quads as well. And the quads are a great accelerator and decelerator of movement. So if Mm -hmm. I can't dorsiflex, we see a kneecap that sits way back almost over the ankle joint when it should be out in front of the toes. Because when I do that and we look like a Z or like a you know a W if we go all the way up and we have this kind of accordion effect, we can absorb and release forces really fluently. And not, not one joint overtakes the others and that's what causes injury. We can use them all. So if an athlete can't get in a stance without creating some good quality dorsiflexion and we know dorsiflexion pronates the foot which is a propulsive Mm -hmm. method right if i can't do that very well i don't get the same propulsion so now i'm starting to use other ancillary movement patterns that probably aren't as effective and eventually it becomes kind of like a an acute or a chronic type stress to our body so that ability to move that knee forward because of good dorsiflexion loads the system better And now I can change directions effectively. I can initiate acceleration in any direction. And I have to be able to capture that dorsiflexion off a hip turn, off a, let's say we're making them do a shuttle run. Every time they do a rotational stop, they got to be able to turn, plant that foot, take off. Um, If I'm doing, let's say I'm doing a back pedal to a reverse lunge stop and take off like a T-step or a vertical, or I might be doing a backwards jump stop or offset jump stop i have to have that ability to planter or excuse me dorsiflex and then be able to come out of it that's really mm-hmm. really important so so those for those reasons right there that's what we're that's what we want to make sure that we're really really doing well all right so i i reached out to my instagram stories and got some q a questions for you and i wanted to bring up right. the nba playoffs you mentioned that earlier one of the one of the really good questions was um, who is someone in the NBA that young players should watch from a movement perspective um, to try to kind of model their movement after? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, that's a, You know, I like that question because uh, it, um, it, it gives people who are asking the question or viewers an opportunity to start to view other players and say, mm-hmm. ah, that's not right. They're, they're not doing it right. Versus, you know, that's really smooth. So if we want somebody like Trey Young, and I'm mentioning Trey Young for a reason, because I I, I know his his uh, NBA strength coaches really well, and I've worked with the Hawks a little bit in the past. And Trey Young's dad used to make him run track. So they did a lot of sprint work, a lot of acceleration work, because I remember saying to one of the strength coaches that was there, um, I, I was breaking down some film of uh, Trey and I said, man, he's just got a really nice gait cycle. And they say, oh yeah, is that, he ran track. And so it translates really well into his multi-directional speed too. Cause if you watch him, when he, when he shifts mm-hmm. into another gear, he's like a deer, he's gone mm-hmm. really, really quick. So he gets great positioning. He's capable of capturing good dorsiflexion and does things really, really well. Uh, watch Drew Holiday. 
Drew mm-hmm. Holiday is known as one of the you know top defenders. Marcus Smart, right? Another one, uh, defensive player of the year type. Well, they do a really, really good job of using the quads. And we are, as an industry, afraid of the quads. We all say, I oh, know they're too quad dominant. They're going to get an ACL. I'm like, most of our young athletes don't have strong enough quads. That's why they buckle. And that's why they fall on deceleration. But watch those guys be able to take contact with their chest still stay bent with their knees, meaning, and dorsiflex, meaning their knees are driven forward and their quads are the primary mover at that point. Those are the guys that can get into different level changes. And you and I know this, Justin, the players that can change the levels instantly and Mm -hmm. move just as efficiently at the different levels are the ones that are the best movers. And they're usually the the least uh, chronically injured like achy stuff because they they have the ability to get in those range of motions so those are two guys that i really like obviously if you watch you like a Giannis mm-hmm. move he's a freak like they call him you know he's a freak on how he moves but he's got some flaws he's got some flaws being a bigger guy not great range of motion in certain things but but he moves really really well otherwise so those are a few guys that you know, to kind of keep an eye on. But those two guards, I really like watching. And Marcus, like I said, Marcus Smart's another good one. And there's a lot of good guards out there to watch. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that have to change levels a lot. For sure. Now, a uh, quick story. I, you brought up the Hawks and um, and uh, Trey Young. And I got to give a shout out to a mutual friend, uh, Ty Terrell, who kind yeah, of a crazy, crazy backstory. That is actually how I discovered you. Uh, probably like 2012 or 2013. So, um, you know, not to get it totally into my backstory, but I, I didn't major in any of this in college. Sure. I just self-educated. Once I found out it's what I wanted to do, I was already halfway through school. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. So I get out of school. I never had an internship um, and I couldn't get an internship because I had to start making money. Right. So I actually enrolled as a member at IFAST and uh ty was my trainer awesome yeah so he you know he was really cool i was like hey this is what i want to do um this is my situation like i'm gonna pay for membership i'm gonna lift three times a week Uh, but i want you to coach me a little different like coach me kind of give me give me the nuggets like tell me why we're doing certain things and and uh he was like you know everything i learned about speed is from lee taft you should check him out that's how I found you. So it's kind of a crazy story. <laughs> That's great. He Ty is wonderful. He was one of the best uh, uh, young guys that that I ever worked with. I've had a couple really, really good ones, but Ty was so inquisitive and just mm-hmm. couldn't stand not knowing the answer to something. And yeah. I can remember when he started with me and he wasn't in the industry at all. He was doing something completely different. And he got in and he used to get so frustrated. He goes, well, how do you know that? I said, Ty, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to know more than 75, 80% of guys that are in this profession just because you're listening to the methodologies that I'm teaching you. And not that I have all the answers, but in multidirectional speed, I've studied it as much as anybody. I put a lot of time mm-hmm. in. So I remember I took him as a young guy. I took him to a perform better with me. And I was up on stage doing my presentations and I told everybody, I said, hey, listen, I know afterwards going to be a lot of questions and that's great. But I said, I got a young man with me and I point back and Ty sitting in the crowd and Ty's eyes get this big because I'm saying, if you guys have any questions, Ty can answer your questions too. And I could tell he's like, no. And, And so it was over and some people went up to him and asked him, he goes, I couldn't believe I knew what they were asked the questions. And, and I said, Ty, it's because that's what you're being exposed to every day. These people aren't being exposed to it. So you're learning stuff. And he just took off and studied like crazy. And then he got connected with Mike and Bill at IFAST. And, and then, you know, that, that just, then he went on, now he's the head guy at uh, the wizard. So he's uh, yeah, he's amazing. He does a great job. Super cool, man. Yeah, I uh, I trained with him for for a year, and uh, you know it was it was great for me for my athleticism, but it shaped my career because I got yep. to be um, around that environment and be in basically the athlete's shoes of of yep. who I want to be as a coach. And so um, I forgot great to story. tell you that earlier, man. That that's a it's a really really full circle moment for me. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. 
All right. So second question. Um, this is that we kind of addressed this, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask anyway, it says, what are the major differences between speed training for basketball and speed training for um, other sports like football, tennis, baseball, and things like that? Yep. So again, I'll always go back to um, the foundation of, of movement and sprinting to me helps every single sport, volleyball, mm -hmm. tennis, pickleball, all these sports that are short court and people think, well, I don't go that far. It doesn't matter. It's like strength training will help you too. Uh, sprinting gives these athletes a chance to develop amazing feet, amazing ankles, amazing lower legs and tendons like we talked about, Achilles, lower leg. It, then it develops that ability to connect the, the legs through the upper body, through the core regions and, and um, you know, the hips and all that stuff. And then the upper body. But from the central nervous system, the, 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 you can't do any other activity where there's quicker ground yeah. contact than a maximal sprint. So all the benefits from that, I just talked my basketball team, almost every one of them, didn't get them all, but almost got them all out for track. And we started a track program at the high school I'm at this year and we sprinted and they followed my sprint program. We sprinted twice a week. We jumped twice a week and our kids kept getting faster and they all wanted to jump higher. Now, most of those kids are dunking and we've been doing it two and a half months, three months now. And they're seeing the benefit, the ones who didn't do it aren't getting the same results. And I kept telling them, I said, we, we train 45 minutes. We go in, we warm up, we do our stuff, we go home. Mm -hmm. And they keep getting faster. So that ability to sprint transcends everything. And then that improves basketball. Now, the difference becomes when, um, when I'm trying to get a basketball player to move more efficiently, there's a tremendous amount of repositioning ability, which means my feet are never in the same spot. And when I want to move, I reposition based on the direction of travel I have to go. Even if it's just for a split second, that ability to do that while staying in the tunnel, which means staying level or not going too much up and down when I don't need to, is really, really critical to help a basketball player move. So we can take all that nice resilience and, and um stiffness and central nervous system adaptations from sprinting general and transfer that into the basketball moves because I'm a I'm a I'm a better central nervous system type mm -hmm. moving athlete at that point. So all the other quickness stuff really matters. And I have a six week program that I share with everybody out there on, on how we start building sprinting and we just keep recycling it every six weeks. I have a daughter that both my daughters did it, but my one daughter just finished college. And she did that six-week sprint program all through college and kept doing it. And she became one of the fastest players on her team because she never got away from sprinting, even in season. She stayed in it. And that's really what makes a, a basketball player a better mover from general sprint work. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, next question. Um, this is from my friend, David. He said, what does your assessment look like? And, and if you have an assessment, kind of like, you know, what's the outline of that look like? Yep. Yep. So to keep it very, very simple. When an athlete comes in, I will do a basic orthopedic type. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physical therapist, but I've studied enough and been around long enough to do a basic ankle range of motion test. Could be something mm -hmm. like a wall test, right? Can the knee get to the wall if you're two, three inches away? Something like that. Mm -hmm. um, we'll do some things like that. We'll do the same thing with the hips, Thomas test, internal rotation, extra. We'll just basic stuff like that. But then I take the seven patterns. Okay. So Every one of those has a model. And if the athlete's within my model, then we're good. We'll move on. But if they're way off the model, I make a note. That's a priority bucket. I have to start to fill a little bit more. So if they don't have the gait cycle for the lateral shuffle, the lateral run, if, they're, if their sprint technique's not really, really good, if their acceleration jump and landing technique, uh, like we'll do a broad jump. I'll do a double leg broad jump, measure it. I'll do a right leg broad jump to two feet. And then a left leg broad jump, and I measure the differences. And if we have a huge discrepancy from one leg to the other, we write that down and we'll start mm -hmm. attacking that. So mine is really, really easy. It, it's very functional. Um, doesn't Anybody can do it, but it gives me a framework as to where I need to start. Number one, to improve the athlete, but number two, actually, number one, to protect the athlete, number two, to improve their performance. So those are the kind of things we do. And here's the other thing I encourage anybody in our profession that's doing some kind of an assessment. 
have your basic assessment that you know how to do. If you don't have answers for those assessments, I don't know that you need to do them because mm -hmm. what are you going to do with it anyway? So just, you know, either send them to somebody that knows how to do it or, or do what you know how to do. Like if you understand basic running mechanics, well, assess them on that. And then I do my strength assessments. Can they, can they uh, hinge, squat, push, pull, vertical, horizontal, just, just like we would. So everything I do, Justin, is exactly how I would train them. Mm -hmm. So it makes it really easy. I don't, I, I don't go in depth like a physical therapist might have to do on certain things because that's not what I am. Uh, if they need that, I'll send them to a therapist yep. and they can take care of them. Yeah. hundred percent. This is a really good question. Um, this one says, who do you learn from? That's, that's, that's huge. And who do I continue mm -hmm. to learn from yep. guys like Dan Path, you know, one of the best, I follow a lot of sprint coaches, Dan mm -hmm. Path and Boo and, and, you know, all these top uh, sprint guys that that's what they do. So I have, and I learned this when I was a young person, long, long time ago, I have what's called a board of directors. Okay. And most of these people, if not all of them, have no idea they're on my board. And these are people, <laughs> like that. well, there are people in certain industries, including business, that if I have questions, I'm going to look what would they do, If whether it's reading mm -hmm. their book, going on their podcast, or uh, reading articles they've written, stuff like that. Bill Hartman, right? Bill Hartman is one of the brightest guys I know. He's unbelievable with stuff and, and, and uh, you know, movement quality. So I'll, I'll look at his stuff. Um, you know, I mentioned the, the sprint guys and then multi-directional guys. There's a lot of guys out there now that are coming up with some really good creative uh, ideas on how to move, um, you know, so I'll follow them. Guys like in the strength world, out, who are the best strength with the power lifters, the Olympic lifters. So I look at the things that they do. What would they help me with? You know, Leo Totten. Leo Totten was one of my mm. first coaching coaches as an Olympic lifting coach. He, I went to his stuff and taught me a lot. Um, you know, Gray Cook, obviously. You know, you list half the people that speak at Perform Better, all those people. You know, I'm really, really big on following them. So there's a lot of people I'm sure I've left out and I hadn't even mentioned, but that's what I do. And if people understand, find out who does something really well in an area you want to improve in and then follow them. And that's, that's how you start to become really, really proficient in different areas. Yeah, I love that. All right, last segment here. We call this the hot seat. Uh -oh. It's just it's just some rapid fire questions. Um, you you don't have to go too in depth on anything yep. you don't want to. Just a little quick back and forth. And most of it is not about training. It's just about nonsense. So it's kind of fun. Cool. cool. All right. First one. Do you believe in aliens? I think I think I do. I we, <laughs> my son and I had this discussion the other day. I think because to sit here and think we got this tremendous galaxy, and and you're telling me there's nothing else out there. I don't know. I think I do. You know, I haven't, you know, played golf with one yet, but I think there is something out there. 100%, man. What's your favorite movie of all time? Oh, gosh. Any of the Rockies. I'm a, hmm. I'm a simple, you know, just give me a guy punching a, a mattress rolled up in his apartment and you got yeah. it. So any of the that. Rockies. Yeah. Uh, what's your most embarrassing basketball story? Oh, wow. So we were, I grew up in Northern New York. We bordered Vermont, my hometown. So I was playing in a basketball game over in Vermont. And I, I was guarding this kid who was a tough kid. He was driving and I stripped him. I just, I reached around, I stripped him. It was clean. I just, and the official called a foul. And the guy, the official was right next to me. And I was so angry. I, I went like this. I just didn't know what to do. And he was right there. And instinctively, I hugged him. I just went up and I hugged him. And then I'm like, I'm like I don't know. I have no idea. Am I thrown out? Am I and I backed away like this. I said, I'm sorry. He laughed. And the crowd laughed. Everybody laughed. And I remember walking away thinking, what the heck did I just do? It was my instinct. He saw me afterwards. He goes, I have never had that happen to me before, but I think he goes, I think that's my favorite response. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I just didn't know what to do because I could tell. So 
that that Dude, was embarrassing <laughs> that that's uh that i asked this question a lot man that's one of the better answers i've ever gotten <laughs> that's pretty funny thrown out probably for touching an official but he was like no problem <laughs> oh man that's good um next question this one's kind of deep what inspires you what inspires me you know, I, I, I kind of talk to this with my kids a lot, my, my players and some of my own kids, but people inspire me who don't make excuses and find a way. Mm-hmm. I read a lot on that. I follow people like that uh, who, who had nothing and had every reason not to be successful if they wanted to. Maybe didn't have parents or had something bad happen, whatever. And they find a way to make it happen, whatever it is, okay? And, and money isn't always the successful story, right? It just could be becoming, getting the job they wanted or, mm-hmm. or creating a relationship that they wanted or having a better relationship with their faith or whatever it is, doesn't matter. That inspires me. That's what I look at. If I'm on social media, I don't follow social media other than to learn, but that's the kind of stuff that I will follow is when people who just make it happen. So that's what inspires me. Yeah, 100%. Uh, what is one food that you would eat every day for the rest of your life um, if it didn't have health implications? So we can go a little unhealthy here. Okay. Okay. If you're going to say health, I'd say eggs because yeah. I'll go through a carton of eggs a day. I just love for eggs. Sure. I eat a ton of eggs. Um, uh, I would probably, I mean, obviously, you know, ice cream. I haven't had ice cream in years and years, but I ice cream, something like that would be some because I loved it. I loved all kinds of ice cream, mm-hmm. like whether it's in a milkshake or uh, whatever. But that probably that's a yeah. tough one to to avoid. But I've been able to avoid it for a while. So, uh, what was your first car, and when did you get it? My first owned car. I was just telling my daughter who came home from college two days ago because I'm teaching her how to drive a stick shift, and we oh, went nice. out yesterday. Nice. Yeah, that that was uh, that was an adventure. So, man, I'm gonna pray my, for you. <laughs> my first car was a honda crv remember those they looked like they got mm-hmm. cut off in the back yeah and little little hatchback honda crv i just had gotten a job teaching job back in uh my old high school and i had some cash finally and i went and bought a honda crv and that was the that was my first owned car i love that yeah um if you weren't a coach what would you be doing for a living you know, Justin, I've had this question asked to me before, and I think I change it all the time because <laughs> I've only coached my whole life. I've never even thought of anything else. I I would say I would like what I'd like to be able to do is to be a like a, um, a, a motivational or inspirational uh, presenter. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily just stand on stage and you know play music and clap and get everybody fired up, but actually teach the art of being able to be motivated to do things and inspired to work and and solutions to solve difficult issues. I like doing that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. That's part of coaching, I guess, but it's not a sport coach. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. For sure. All right, last one right here. This is the big one right here. What is your Mount Rushmore of basketball players? Oh. And can I'll, can... I'll protect you on this. I always say this. It's your favorite. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, who's yep. the best or whatever. It's yep. your four guys. My four guys. Okay. Michael Jordan, obviously. Um, I would have to say Kareem simply because he had the one shot nobody's ever been able to duplicate to that level and was such a weapon. And he was at one point was an unbelievable when he was young, when I was little and he was first came in unbelievable defender and, and stuff. And I watched him in college as well. Uh, so those two right there, I'm going to put LeBron on there. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason I'm putting LeBron on there is because of the durability and the ability to read and how smart he is. And he can do so many things really well, especially when he was in his prime. Um, and then, gosh, this is where I always have a hard time. My favorite, one of my favorite players growing up was the original Isaiah Thomas, the bad boys, mm-hmm. uh, because I, because uh, I was a point guard. He was a point guard. I watched him at IU and, and I uh, loved him and magic, you know, and, and the reason I say magic, because you could look at magic's game and say, well, you know, wasn't a great shooter, uh, you know, wasn't the greatest ball handler. He just muscled people. 
But man, could he run a show. He could mm-hmm. run, and he was the, one of the greatest passers and leaders in the game. Um, so those would be probably my four right now. But if you ask me this tomorrow, I'll probably change it. Yeah. Give you four <laughs> new guys like Pistol Pete Maravich and Tiny Archambault was one of my mm. idols growing up and guys like that. So, yeah, that's that's for today. That's my Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Got you. I love that, man. Well, Lee, thank you so much for joining me, man. It's been great to uh, to connect with you and learn from you. And uh, I think we got a really good episode before I let you get out of here. Just want to give you a chance to let the people know where they can find you, where you're at on social media, website, all that stuff. Well, Justin, thank you. I appreciate what you're doing and you're offering some great stuff and people are going to learn a lot from you. And uh, I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, thank you. I, if they go to leetaf.com, they can pretty much find that's kind of the mothership. They can find anything they want regarding what's going on. I'm very active on social media. I try to post a lot just to help education. And if there's a basketball group of people out there, if they go to basketballspeedspecialist.com. They can learn more about that program. That's kind of a really good communication coaching tool to help help tie words of how we want our athletes to move to the actual movement, make it really simple. So, uh, but yeah, thank you. I appreciate it and uh, best of luck. And I can't wait to uh, share this episode with my followers. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. And that was episode 23 with Lee Taft packed with gyms on basketball speed and agility. Um, I hope you guys learned a lot from this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure you show Lee some love on social media. Make sure you guys like, share, comment, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. Let Lee know how much you enjoyed this episode by being interactive on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Again, we will be back next week with episode 24. Got some more guests coming on the show. Keep this train rolling. Keep the momentum going. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this. And I'll see you guys next week with another great show.